Well, as I was preparing for this teaching, I felt like Yeshua gave me some starter material, but I don't like feel like he gave me the whole picture on all of it. So I, I'm going to need your, your thoughts and your feedback as we go here. I want to see what kind of revelation he has for us. Yeah. Um, it's a chapter that we didn't read this morning, but I, I'm sure that you're aware of the many similarities between the figure of Joseph and the figure of Yeshua whose adopted father's name was Joseph and who definitely fits the bill for the, uh, the, the expectations of the Jewish people for a Messiah who's going to be called Messiah, son of Joseph, who will suffer on behalf of Israel and actually die and traditional Judaism even suggests be raised from the dead. Um, I, I wanted to point out one similarity here because I have a story for you along those lines. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 8, it says, But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they didn't recognize him. And uh, I, I had a story for you about that, maybe about the whole concept of Joseph recognizing his brothers, picturing Yeshua recognizing his brothers, the people of Israel, but maybe the people of Israel not recognizing him for who he is. Maybe he looks more like a goy to the Jewish people, you know, like a Gentile, like, you know, an Egyptian dude with the armbands and the shaved head and, well, you know, well, you assume he probably is all about pagan gods and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's what Joseph's brothers thought about Joseph. Right? They didn't recognize him, and that's how the Jewish people think. So here, there's, I have a story for you. So there's this, um, there's this Jewish guy in the synagogue, and he goes to his rabbi. And he says, Rabbi, I, I'm having a terrible crisis right now, and uh, I, need you to, I need your advice. It's my firstborn son. You see, my oldest boy, he, uh, I raised him as such a good Jew, and I brought him to the synagogue every, every Shabbat. And, you know, he, he grew up reading from the Torah, and he had his bar mitzvah, and, and uh, now he's decided to become a convert to Christianity and become a Gentile. And the rabbi says, hmm, that's very interesting that you'd come to me about that. I have actually had a similar problem. My, my, my firstborn son, my oldest, he, he, um, I raised him, of course, as a good Jew too. I mean, he was a rabbi's son. And I, I taught him the Torah, and, and he grew up doing, doing the mitzvot and everything. And then he, he grew up, and he, he made the decision to convert to Christianity, and now he's a Gentile. But, uh, and, and so the, the man said to the rabbi, well, what, what did you do? And the rabbi said, well, I went to uh, my old uh, Rosh Yeshiva. Do you know what a Rosh Yeshiva is? It's like the head of the, uh, a Jewish Bible college, essentially. So I went to the, I went to the old head of my, my, Bible, my Jewish Bible college, and, uh, and the Jewish guy said, well, what did, what did he say to you? And the rabbi said, well, the head of my Jewish Bible college said, you know, it's funny that you'd come to me about this, because I have an oldest boy too, who uh, I raised him as a good Jew, and uh, I mean, he was even in the yeshiva. He knew all the Torah, and then he grew up, and he, uh, he decided to convert to Christianity and become a, become a Christian. So, uh, so the Jewish guy said to his rabbi, so what did the... Uh, what did the Rosh Yeshiva say to you when you went to him and you, you told him about your crisis? And uh, the, uh, the rabbi said, well, my, the, uh, the head of my Bible college, he went to God. And he talked to God about his problem in this crisis with his oldest boy. And the guy said, well, what did, what did God tell the head of your Bible college, your Rosh Yeshiva? And the rabbi said, God said, well, you know, it's funny you'd come to me about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not sure if you catch that or not, but God's firstborn son looks like a Gentile to a lot of the Jewish people. It looks like Jesus converted to Christianity, doesn't it? Looks like he founded a new Gentile religion. And it is true that he came to bring the kingdom of God, and that was something bigger than Judaism, but it isn't true that Jesus became a Gentile. Thankfully, he speaks all the languages of the nations, and um, he can definitely relate to everybody, but Jesus continues to be Jewish. He, uh, he continues to be someone who loves the Torah. Uh, when he comes back, it talks in the prophets about how we're going to be celebrating Jewish festivals as a global phenomenon, stuff like the weekly Shabbat, you know, end of Isaiah, the weekly Shabbat, the uh, monthly Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. So we know, like, that's the calendar we're going to be on in the, in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, talks about Sukkot, the festival of booths at the end of Zechariah. So anyway, that's our Savior. That's a look at our future with our Savior. So that's a, that's a humorous story that I read from a, a series of Jewish, uh, Jewish jokes. You know, the sad thing is for most Jewish people, that's where the story ends. And it's kind of true. You know, they view it as like Jesus did kind of apostatize, which is too bad. But, I mean, hey, God is, God is on the move today. He is clarifying who He is to all the nations of the world. And He's definitely also clarifying to the people of Israel who His, who his beloved Son is, uh, what Yeshua is really all about. And, hey, we're a part of that. We get to represent Yeshua as a very Jewish Messiah. Even to, uh, let's say, our Israeli friends at the mall. Hey? So this is a practical thing. This is something that's, that's totally happening. Okay, uh, who can tell me the name of this parasha? This uh, this reading from the Torah. Mekates. What does Mekates mean? Yes, that's correct. It's the Hebrew word for at the end. And it's named that because the beginning of this parasha in, uh, where is it? <clears throat> Genesis chapter 41, verse, verse 1. It says, Now it happened at the end of two full years <clears throat> that uh, Pharaoh had a dream. So this is going to set the whole tone for this parasha. It's a parasha that has to do with the end. Maybe that has to even do with the end of days. Maybe it communicates prophetic themes about the revelation of Yeshua to the Jewish people uh, directly prior to His return. So that's, that's setting the tone. Maybe this thing about a, a massive crisis in the world, superpower this, uh, of the day, like this, this famine, and um, the, the, the people of Israel having to go down to Egypt to survive, and appearing before Joseph who had this authority. Maybe these are all themes that are going to play out in the end of days. This whole seven-year block of time where there was plenty, and then a seven-year block of time when there was great famine and a massive crisis uh, where lives are hanging in the balance. Um, maybe these are some themes that um, appear later in the scriptures, in the prophecies of Yeshua about the end of days, in the uh, book of Revelation. Yeah. Here's something else interesting. This Hebrew term for the end comes up in another place, or rather like another application in this chapter, but it's translated as a different word. So we don't get the full meaning here. The Hebrew word for waking up from a dream is the same word as this word for the end. Like, uh, okay, so the name of this parasha is Miketz, at the end. And uh, the, the word for like waking up from a dream, let's say in uh, okay, Genesis 41 verse 4, it says, um, no, yeah, it says, Then Pharaoh awoke. That Hebrew word for awakening is the same word for the end. Vaikatz paro is how, how it says it. Can you hear the katz part there? Yeah, that's, the, that's that part. Um, similarly, in verse 7, it talks about awakening again. It says, uh, Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. 
So it's, again, it says, Vaikats paro. And then uh, again, in verse 21, he's, a, he's describing his dream, and then it be, ends by saying, Then I awoke. And it uses that same verb. So there's a, there's a connection here at the beginning of this parsha between the end and waking up from a dream. How do, how do you think that might apply to the end of days, let's see, when Yeshua is returning? Let's just, let's just continue looking at this parsha, and I think some of these elements are going to begin coming together. Okay, I have, a, I have an object lesson today. Who can tell me what this is? It's, it's a deceptive egg carton. It doesn't have a dozen eggs. I'm sorry. I only brought one egg today. Who can tell me what's inside of this little uh, package? The yolk. The yolk, that's right. <laughs> Pre-chicken. Future chicken. Okay, it may not turn into a future chicken. I don't want to disappoint you, but... Yes, and there's not only a yolk. What else is in there? Egg white, that's correct. The Hebrew word for egg white is chalmut. Can we all say chalmut? It's like the word, it's also idiomatically used in Hebrew for like any kind of food that's really bland. Like if you've ever had tasteless food, maybe you, maybe you forgot to salt it, or maybe it's like unsalted oatmeal or something. How many of you ate a lot of oatmeal growing up? I had a lot of porridge growing up, okay? So I know, what, I know what bland porridge tastes like. I also know what tasty porridge tastes like. So, like bland porridge, you, you would say, this stuff is halmut. This stuff is really bland. It's like, it's like sucking up egg white. I mean, there's just no taste to it. Alright? Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. The, uh, the Hebrew verb root for egg white is the same word for dream. And this isn't an accident. They're conceptually related. What's the similarity? Like, let's just think about this for a second here, okay? Because Hebrew is like God's language. It has His divine fingerprints all over it. So whenever there's a, a word that is the same word, but it has two different meanings, it's like God saying, look at this, there's a connection here, right? So what's the connection between egg whites and dreams? <laughs> it's kind of like the mush floating around in the eggshell, like dreams floating around in our head at night, hey? That's very true. Yep, they're both all over the place. You could almost say like fluid or formless, hey? Yeah. I forgot to mention to you, the Hebrew word for a dream is chalom. Can we all say chalom? Like C-H-A-L-O-M. Chalom. So in the Hebrew word for egg white, I would spell that C-H-A-L-M-U-T. Chalmut. So you can hear that three-letter root, the uh, the chet, the lamed, and the mem, right? All right. What are some other similarities? Can anybody think of any? This is the fun of Hebrew study, hey? <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking through this one too. I was just thinking about how like an egg contains something in an, like an embryonic state in a very new, uh, new phase. And dreams likewise often are like there's something in an embryonic state. It's something in a very new phase. Like even let's say, not even like literal dreams, but if you're daydreaming or you're dreaming about your future, often you have an idea that comes to you in that embryonic state and then from there it often will kind of hatch and it'll become something that grows into reality. Something that I've been contemplating this week, most of the dreams in the Torah, there are ten dreams that are mentioned, are mentioned in the last couple of parashas. Uh, Judaism traditionally calls the ninth month, which is the ninth Kislev, the month that we just finished, the month of dreams. 
It's, it's famous for a time when people have a lot of dreams, a lot of meaningful dreams, and uh, correlatively, most of the parishes in the Torah that talk about dreams are in there. I noticed that in my own life, actually. I was like, hey, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, I, uh, I've been thinking about dreams in general. What's the language of dreams? The language of dreams is symbols, right? Um, often if you have an interpretation like Pharaoh's dream, it's like, okay, the cows, it doesn't mean cows. The seven cows mean seven years, right? So the cattle are symbolic of seven years. Um, all of these things, the butcher and the baker and not the candlestick maker, but the, uh, who is like, the, the, was it the butcher and the baker? No, the, the cupbearer, that's right. I just think butcher and baker because of, you know. But anyway, so the cupbearer and them, like, you know, he had the, uh, the basket on his head with the, I don't know, the Tim Hortons donuts or whatever, you know, the pastries, and, uh, and then the birds came and eat it, and all of this was symbolic, right? So dreams, like the language of dreams is symbolism. And I looked up where that term symbol comes from because I was curious. I love looking up where words come from, the etymology of them. And it's from the Greek term symbolon. Well, thankfully, we don't have any Greek speakers here because I'm not, probably not saying it right. But, so symbolon. Do you know what that literally means? That sim part means like together and the other part means like to throw. So it literally means stuff that's thrown together. Things that are thrown together. That's, that's the Greek term for symbol, which is the language of dreams. Like jumbled. And let me ask you, is that, is that, has that ever been true of dreams for you? Like your dreams are just this big, disparate bunch of elements thrown together, and it's like such a jumble, and maybe it doesn't make any sense, or you're like, chunk, 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 how did I cover so many themes, you know? Um, I'm just, I'm thinking through this, cause I, and I'm going somewhere with this too, just so you know. But, uh, yes. That's what I was thinking of, actually, Charlotte. I think an excellent analogy of symbols and the language of dreams is a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle. But in the dream, all of the pieces are a big mess. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you, have you ever felt like your life was that way? Have you ever felt like you were in a situation or some event? And maybe you even said, this feels like a dream. This does not feel like reality. Or maybe it just felt like all of this, this jumble of puzzle pieces, disparate elements, and you didn't have a clue how they all fit together. Yeah, about 55 years. About 55 years worth. Okay. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely. It's, it's this whole concept of dreams. It's this whole concept also of, uh, of, like you said, Wayne, like something that's fluid, that's formless, that is kind of all over the place. I mean, really. Even, even at our Hanukkah party, you know, we were sitting around talking about our stories from the past, and it's kind of like, and then we were here for a couple of years, and then we were over here, and then we did this, and then we did that. And it's like, man, it's like this big jumble, isn't it? Sometimes we look at our lives and we say, I do not see much coherence here. There doesn't seem to be a steady flow of rationale. Um, maybe especially for some of us, if our lives are more like ping-pong balls or whatever. We're just bouncing around, you know? But, um... Here's an analogy that a, a very wise lady once, once shared with me. Have you ever seen a tapestry before? And if you look at the right side of the tapestry, what do you see? You see like a beautiful picture, maybe a landscape or, or some figure or whatever. But have you ever looked at the back of a tapestry before? What do you see on the back of a tapestry? Like a big mess. A big jumble of threads all over the place. It's so not neat and tidy. And uh, what, this, what this lady shared with me is like, that's your life. We only get to look at our lives from the back of the tapestry. 
Because we're, we're in the middle of them. So what? You look at your life and it's like, it's a big mess. It's this jumble of stuff and who knows how it all fits together. It's like looking at the jigsaw picture of your, pi- picture of your life without like putting the pieces together. And maybe that's where faith comes in, eh? So it's just, you know, the conclusion there, of course, is when Mashiach returns, when we enter into the eternal state with Him, we will look back at our lives as they're inscribed in the book of life, as they're written in God's journal about you, and it's all going to make sense. All the pieces are going to come together. And I don't know, I mean, if we're living in, like, outright rebellion to the Holy One, it's all just cardboard. Have you ever... That would be a fun game. You should flip all the puzzle pieces over and just try to put it together based on the cardboard, hey? <laughs> a schmuzzle. That's hilarious. So on one side of the puzzle, it's, it's a real picture of frogs. And then the other side is a bunch of disparate... Is it the same thing, the frogs, but it's all messed up? Or? Oh, wow. That would be my great tribulation, trying to put that together. I know. Kenton Ryland, do you guys have many dreams? Do you ever dream about cool stuff? I dream about, I dream about guns a lot. I dreamt, about, I dreamt about a really cool pellet gun last night. This is totally off topic, but that's okay. I dreamt about this really cool pellet gun that had all of these little, uh, you know like the little bubbles in a level? I, I dreamt that it had all of these bubbles like built into the, uh, the stock of it so that you could raise it up and it would automatically calibrate like distance and, uh, and windage and everything. It was a pretty cool, pretty cool gun. Oh yeah, you should. And all my dreams are like action, action adventure dreams and running around in the country and stuff usually. Yeah, so it, it's classic. I tell Genevieve and she's like, oh, you dreamt about guns again. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you one more Hebrew word that is relevant to this, this uh, discussion. The Hebrew word for an interpretation of dreams is pitron. Everybody say pitron. P-I-T-R-O-N, pitron. And uh, it's from the, the verb root patar, which means to open. So, you know, if you want to open a door, you patar the door. Um, the firstborn is called the, the peter, because he's the opener. He opens the womb, is the concept there, right? Like the peter rechem, the opener of the rechem, the womb. Um, Actually, there's an interesting reference to the Apostle Peter in traditional Jewish literature. Um, they gave him a nickname. It wasn't a very kind nickname, actually. It, they called him the... Uh, okay, so like in Exodus, it talks about the firstborn of a donkey. And, you know, you're to redeem that or else axe it. And, uh, and so that, that's called a peter chamor. A chamor is a donkey, right? So peter chamor is the firstborn of a donkey. But he was called Petros or Peter. So the... Uh, unbelieving people gave him this nickname Peter Hamor, firstborn of a donkey, based on uh, you know, his, name, his Hebrew name Petros. You don't read that in the Bible, of course. This is just in Jewish literature. It's not the nicest nickname, but Jewish people have this thing about giving nicknames. I don't know if you know this. Like Yeshua, he nicknamed at least three of his disciples, hey? These two guys, like, you know, the sons of Zebedee, they were the sons of thunder, right? They were the thunder boys. And then, like, and then we had uh, Peter, you know, he, he nicknamed him the Rock. Um, you know, Barnabas, he was such an encouraging guy. His name was Joseph, Yossi, right? And they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means like son of encouragement. It'd be like calling, calling you Mr. Encouragement in English, right? It's like, hey, Mr. Encouragement, how's it going, you know? So anyway, there's an example of a nickname that wasn't so nice that didn't make it into the New Testament. Absolutely. And it, it, is a, it is a good prophetic nickname. Uh, for instance, we just learned that that root means to interpret dreams. A pitron is the interpretation of a dream. 
Actually, I, I have an acquaintance on Facebook who's in a Messianic uh, congregation in the States. And he said that one night, he dreamt that someone told him the Hebrew word Petron. And he didn't know what it meant. So he got up in the morning and he looked it up in his Hebrew dictionary and it meant the interpretation of a dream. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? What's the interpretation of that? I don't know. But anyway, so you know, Peter, even the, the figure of Peter, that name could have also suggested him being skilled in interpreting dreams. Or let's say maybe he were, if he were to have a vision, he could accurately apply that vision. Did that ever happen in, in Peter's life? Yeah, it did, didn't it? So maybe even the Hebrew root of this Greek name had meaning. You know, he, he had that whole vision about the sheet being let down. He accurately interpreted that, and it, it allowed the kingdom to break out into the Gentile world, which was a very powerful thing. Okay, so let's begin to pull some of these things, these like disparate elements. This, maybe this discussion feels like, like a big jumble of stuff right now, right? But let's start to, let's start to bring this together now. We just talked about how um, the end is equated with waking up from a dream. We talked about how our lives to some degree are like dreams. I think for some of people, some people they're in a total dream, like they're totally out of touch with reality. They're like floating around with their own ideas and their own worldview and it's so skewed. In fact, maybe most of our society is like that. Maybe I'm like that some days. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But here's the thing. What we learn from this is when Yeshua comes back, when the end of the days culminate, that is when everybody wakes up from the dream. And we can choose to allow him to wake us up earlier. We can choose him to let us wake us up today to be like, wow, he is alive from the dead. His call is urgent. We can be his disciples. We can invest in our future in the messianic year in the world to come. Or we can, you know, blow our lives like pursuing stuff that's all going to burn when he comes back. Maybe that's, maybe that's some of the whole idea of awakening. You know, we, uh, even when we were praying, and um, a couple of you were praying about how Yeshua, every knee is going to bow to Him in the future. Every tongue is going to confess to Him. That is the ultimate reality that this world is on a collision course with. And most people haven't clued into that fact. And it's going to be a real collision for a lot of people with serious loss of life when they realize who the King of the universe is and uh, his, his preferences and stuff that He hates. So, you know, we can choose to wake up right now and embrace His will, or we can wait, and we're going to wake up at the end, and it's going to be too late. Um, maybe that's one thing we learned from this. Also, I, I know like in my, in my mid-teens, I was, I was wrestling with severe depression. Um, there, was some, there was some very difficult things going on in my family, and it was hard. And I have to admit that my life felt like a bad dream. Like, it really did. Um, I was wrestling with a lot of the classic questions like, what is the meaning of my life? What, what, what is my future going to be? I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I was really depressed. Um, like, what is my purpose? You know, I was also starting to look forward to finishing school and asking God, okay, God, like, I belong to you. My whole life is yours. What, what do we want to do with life here? Um, I was beginning to ask these questions. And in that regard, I, I think a lot of people, their lives are like a dream where it's just like this big jumbled mess and they're asking these questions like, what is the meaning of my life? Why am I on this earth? And I think that's where Yeshua comes in. Just like Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, when he had this dream and it was really bothering him, he had these questions that were plaguing him, Joseph was able to come in and say, this is what your dream means. This is the way things are going to play out. This is a look at your future. 
And that is true of Yeshua, the son of Joseph also, the, the Messiah ben Yosef. He's the one who can come in and say, this is your future. This is what your life means. See all of these disparate elements? This is why this is going on. Because really, like, it doesn't make any sense outside the perspective of faith, hey? So Yeshua, Yeshua is like, where, where Joseph is a picture of Yeshua. So where Joseph interpreted the dream of Pharaoh, Yeshua is here to interpret the dream of our whole lives, interpret the dream of, like, everything that confuses people. Yeah. In, interestingly enough, um, that whole concept of, like, interpretation, it means to break open like we just talked about. What do you do with an egg? You break it open. So it's almost like when, you inter- when, you inter- when a dream is interpreted, it's like it's broken out of the egg and maybe actually some senses is made of it. Yeah. There's, there's one Hebrew term here that I love that's applied to Joseph that can definitely be applied to Yeshua also. In um, chapter 42, verse 24, Genesis 42:24. Okay, forget it. That isn't it. I don't know where it is. But anyway... Um, there's a place where it talks about telling the dream. Instead of using the term like someone who can poter, who can interpret the dream, the term telling the dream is given. And that Hebrew term is magid. Can you all say magid? It's M-A-G-I-D. And it's a title of the Messiah. Messiah is the ultimate magid. He is like the teller. Um, during the Passover Seder, you know how we have four cups, right? One of those cups is called the magid. You remember that? Why is it called the Magid? Because that's the one where we tell the story of the Exodus. We sit down and we tell the story of the Exodus. So, if Yeshua is the Magid, and that cup pictures him, then what is Yeshua's job description? What does he do as the Mashiach? He tells the story of national Israel. He tells the story of human history. And if, he, if we let him, I think, I think he wants to tell your story too. He wants to tell my story. Um, when we're single and we're looking for his future spouse, he wants to tell your love story. He wants to write the story of your, your romance. And I guess that continues after, after people get married too, thankfully. You know? So that's an example of how Yeshua is the Magid, how he's like the teller of the ultimate true story. Yeah, and uh, Joseph is a picture of that. 41-24, thank you. Oh, I am so glad you're here today, John. <laughs> so that was, that was the main thing that really jumped out at me from this parasha um, as it relates to our lives and the lives of the people we encounter every day um, as it relates to who Yeshua is. And that's my favorite. I love seeing how uh, the Torah points to Yeshua on such a profound level. Here, here's, a, here's, a, here's something else that really jumped out at me. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Did they only start after the Spirit was poured out on Shavuot in Jerusalem? Paul lists them in, what, 1 Corinthians uh, 12 to 14, right? And uh, here, let's, let's see if we can fire them all off. Let's see if we can remember all nine, just off the top of our heads. Love is not one of them that are... That's the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts are like... Um, prophecy. Interpretation of tongues, healing... Teaching actually isn't included in that list of the nine. Okay, yeah, that's not included in the list of those nine either. <laughs> nope, <laughs> that's not included either in that list. That's in his Ephesians list. In yeah, faith, tongues, hearing, which means words of wisdom and words of knowledge. I'll give those two to you. <laughs> Prophecy, maybe we got that one, I don't know. 
Okay, good. Well, anyway, so you, you get the idea, right? But sometimes we're, you know, we, we think like these things only started with the uh, outpouring of the Racha Kodesh. And that's definitely where the gifts of the Holy Spirit really notched up. Somehow it seems like they became more available to everyone. But it's interesting that Joseph definitely functioned in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For instance, when he, when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he was, he was interpreting that by the word of knowledge. He was given a supernatural word of knowledge. He then went on and he went the extra mile and he said, and this is what you should do, Pharaoh. You should uh, appoint someone uh, to, etc. That was a word of wisdom. He was given a word of wisdom. Um, Joseph, I think, also was gifted with the, with the gift of prophecy, which is another one of these nine gifts. And um, who knows, it, by all appearances, it looks like he was fluent with Egyptian by the time he came out of prison. It could be that he was endowed with the gift of tongues, maybe to help him learn Egyptian. Or it could just be that he was really, really smart. And I mean, hey, think about this. If This is something I was thinking about from previous Parshas. If God wanted to send Joseph through Egyptian language school to give him like flawless Egyptian so that when he was elevated to that place in second uh, in command, he would be able to actually communicate with Egyptians, sound like an Egyptian to the point where he would even use a translator to speak with his Hebrew bros so that they didn't know who he was, what would be the, what would be the best place to send Joseph so that he would have lots of time on his hands so that he could learn fluent Egyptian? Yeah, why don't we send jail, let's send Joseph to jail for a couple of years where he's not allowed to do anything but sit around with a bunch of Egyptians. What do you think the chances are that that's where he learned fluent Egyptian? Now, what if we wanted to teach Joseph like court Egyptian, like the language of the Egyptian bureaucracy? Well, then we would send him to the special prison where Pharaoh's officials are imprisoned, right? And that's where Joseph went. So, I mean, you know, maybe this would be an example of this whole concept. Joseph's life was a big mess. He probably didn't have a clue what was going on or why it was going on. In the midst of it, he held on to his integrity. And when he finally walked out of that prison and interpreted that dream to Pharaoh, it all began to make sense, didn't it? Even while he was in prison for those years, that was his ulpan. You know, the, you know the term ulpan? It's like Hebrew language school. If you want to learn Hebrew, you go to Israel to an ulpan, right? That was Joseph's Egyptian ulpan in prison. Pretty cool. So anyway, um, maybe that's an example from, from Joseph's life. And uh, there, there, are two, there are two passages here that I think are very relevant to operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. It says, Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? In whom is the Ruach of Elohim? So, like when we, when we are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are functioning in the gifts that He has given each one of us, when we are stirring up those gifts within ourselves, like Paul encouraged Timothy to do, people are going to say, wow, this is a different kind of person I'm dealing with here. Like, there's a divine spirit in this guy. There's a divine spirit in this lady. And I hope that, that doesn't only apply to a congregational setting. Maybe that's what our co-workers could be saying about us. Let's say you're on the job and you're given a word of knowledge for a co-worker who doesn't even believe in God. Just like Pharaoh was a hardcore pagan, right? Pharaoh turned around and he said, wow, this is a different kind of person I'm dealing with here. There's a divine spirit in this guy. 
Maybe that's the idea behind the gifts of the Spirit, hey? I mean, it's kind of easy to function in them in a congregational setting because we all believe in God. We're, we're comfortable with the moving of the Holy Spirit. But I feel like maybe Yeshua is prompting us to say, step out in the gifting I've given you. Begin to operate in that gift in faith in like outside of your comfort zone and watch me come through for you. Watch how it's a testimony for, for me. Maybe that's something that the Master is saying to us today. Um, I love Joseph's response to in Genesis 41 verse 16 this is what he has to say so Pharaoh says to Joseph so I've had a dream and uh, no one can interpret it and I've uh, heard about you Joseph that when you hear a dream you can interpret it and listen how Joseph responds right away it's not in me God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Isn't that an awesome description of when we function in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Like, this is not me. This is God doing something through me. Whether it be prophecy or healing or massive faith or whatever it is, just to be able to say like, wow, that isn't in me. That is God. So, I just love how all the way back in the, in the personage of Joseph, we can, we can see this, this powerful new covenant experience. Yeah. Uh, you guys were talking be- just before we started about Prime Minister Harper and how the strong stance that he has taken against anti-Semitism and uh, the strong stand for Israel that he's taken has really put Canada at the forefront on an international level with regards to this whole issue. And that's true. Like Canada leads the world right now in, in, um, in, in being vocal about combating, combating anti-Semitism, about standing with Israel, and about calling some of the misinformation and the skewed views that the media try, is trying to perpetrate on the world for what it is. I was floored to read a couple of weeks ago what the middle name of our Prime Minister is. Do you know what it is? It's Joseph. Yeah. The middle name of our Prime Minister is Joseph. Do you think that's a mistake? I mean, Joseph is a son of Israel in the Torah, right? He looks like an Egyptian. He has fluent Egyptian bureaucratic lingo. Um, He's in a position of power, and God set him in that position of power. Joseph was not just a pagan who worshipped the pantheon of Egyptian gods. Joseph knew in his heart who who he belonged to and who his God was. And Joseph was set there so that he could stand with the people of Israel, so that he could support them, so that he could see them through that hard time, so that the people of Israel would survive in a time of international crisis. And our Prime Minister's middle name is Joseph. Thank God, hey? Thank you, Father. Like that, that, I don't feel that that is an accident. So let's just continue praying for a prime minister. And if, and if the core of Joseph's success lay in his faith and in his, in his integrity, I believe that's two key things that we can be praying for Prime Minister Harper on a regular basis. Pray for his integrity and pray for his faith. Because that's what carried Joseph through and that is what it's going to carry our prime minister through also. Should all start buying the Superstore brand of clothing. You, you know what the name of their brand is, right, Joe? Maybe that'll really go like, I don't know get really popular just as a sign of that hey stuff like that happens it does doesn't it I don't know what yeah anyway I won't go there uh, <laughs> yeah let's, let's look at Romans for a couple of minutes also here uh, Romans chapter 7 and 8 one thing I want to point out is what I would call Pauline nomology uh, the Greek term for the Torah or law is nomos 
So if your your uh, like your beliefs about about God or Theos or your theology, then your beliefs about the Torah, the Nomos, or your nomology, right? Um, it's a ter- it's a term I coined. Hopefully, hopefully it works for us here. So we're going to talk about Paul's nomology for a second, and I just I just want us to look at how he how he looked at the Torah, the uh, the view that he had of it. In uh, Romans seven verse twelve, so he's talking about this experience, right? When he uh, he wouldn't have known that coveting was wrong, except that God said don't covet, and then you realize that God said not to covet. And you realize, oh shoot, I'm doing a lot of that one. I'm in trouble, right? And then, and then what was his next response? I'm going to try really hard not to covet, right? Not going to covet, not going to covet. Oh, I'm coveting again. And it just got worse and worse. It was like this vicious cycle. Where he, and, and, and the more he tried, the more he coveted, and the more he realized how messed up he was inside, how dead he was spiritually, how he needed something. I'm totally paraphrasing here, right? But I, I hope I'm being true to trying to describe his experience. I don't know if any of you experienced that in your lives. And thankfully, that's not where his story ended. Okay, I'll give you an example. Close your eyes for a second, okay? Don't worry, I'm not going to like throw any water balloons on you. Okay, now do not think about pink elephants. Whatever you do, do not think about pink elephants right now. Try really hard not to think about pink elephants. What are you thinking about right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's that idea, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. So Paul was... Paul, and then, okay, but then Paul, Paul went out of his way to explain something. He said, okay, so I'm having this horrible experience because I encountered one of God's commands and I realized that I'm totally not living that in my life. But, does that make God's commands bad? Does it make them sin because it's showing me how dead I am inside? No. And then, he, and then he goes out of the, his way to clarify in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. He says, so, so the Torah, the Torah is holy. Right? So God's Torah, it's holy. And uh, the commandment, like the mitzvah, it is holy too. And it's also righteous and it's good. He uh, also went on in verse 14 to say, we know that the Torah is spiritual. So God's law, it's not just like some old thing that doesn't apply anymore. It's not just a bunch of letters and if you get sucked into all the letters then you're going to end up in the letter of the law and it's all going to be legalism. No, that was not Paul's nomology. What Paul was saying there is like when we approach God's Torah in the spirit of God in which his Torah was written, we encounter the holiness of God. And when we, when we look at every single one of the commands God gave, like how many are there in the Torah? Who knows? Traditionally, they say 613. Just go through that list. Look at each one of those commands sometime and say, that commandment is holy. How is it holy? That commandment is righteous. How is this commandment righteous? How does it communicate the righteousness of God? And that commandment is good. How is that commandment good? How is that commandment beneficial to the people of Israel or to my life? How is that mitzvah healthy for me and my family life or our congregational life, etc.? This is Pauline nomology. This was how he approached the Torah. He approached all of the Torah as being holy, being righteous, and being good. And I have to admit, like, it, it disturbs me. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people referencing stuff from the Old Testament in a really negative light. Maybe because they don't understand it or whatever. Like, okay, one of the commands in the Torah is like, if you have a really rebellious son who is like, 
constantly going out and getting hammered and doesn't listen to you and just is freeloading, etc. Take him to the elders of, of your city and uh, stone him to death. Now listen, we're not in the land of Israel. This does not happen in Israel or anywhere, okay? So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we should do that because we're not like in that system of theocracy or whatever. But I, sometimes I hear people referencing that and, they t- and, they, and the way they talk about it, they're talking about it like it's not a righteous commandment. They're talking about it like it wasn't a good commandment. But Paul says, every single command in the law of God is holy, it's righteous and it's good. And I'll, I'll take that a step further. I mean, there are other ones, right? Tattoos or uh, whatever. You know, you know the classic ones, uh, have you ever read that paper like, uh, Why Can't I Own a Canadian? No? Okay, get on Google sometime and just type why. You know how when you type in a Google word, it gives you a big list of words that begin with that? Like, I remember typing in how sometime, and it has things like how to get rid of fruit flies. I guess there are a lot of people trying to get rid of fruit flies, you know? So do that with the Google word why. And one of the first things that will come up is why can't I own a Canadian? It's a paper written kind of along those lines. You may have encountered it before. It kind of like is like, well... I think it's written like maybe to Dr. Laura or something, but it's like, well, if you support the law of God today, then how come I can't uh, own a Canadian or a Mexican as my slave? And uh, do you suggest that I take my child out and kill my child for rebellion, etc., right? It's kind of cast in a humorous way, but you can totally hear the, the voice of a satanic mocker behind it also. Anyway, I encourage you, read that paper. Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of us sound when we talk about God's eternal law. It's kind of scary. So, all that to say, you know, let's really guard the law of God. Let's speak well of it. Let's, let's defend it. Maybe that's why God said to like keep as in guard or defend his commandments. Maybe because they come under fire, you know. It's like if you hate God and you want to take pot shots at him, a really easy way is just take pot shots at the Bible. You know, take pot shots at stuff in the Bible that maybe you disagree with. I don't know. So... Anyway, that's Pauline demology. Something I love about this too is he doesn't just say that the Torah is physical. So, you know, for, for many of us, like, we're really realizing we left off the physical element of the Torah. Like Shabbat, okay? So we were always like, yes, our, our Sabbath is in Messiah, and that is so true. He is our ultimate Sabbath rest. But we've been realizing, like, hey, God said, like, his Sabbath was forever, and this is a literal commandment. It's for a specific day of the week, right? Like Friday evening to Saturday evening, 24-hour block of time. This is some physical stuff. But I think it's something important to remember from Paul as we are, as we are exploring the physical side of the Torah and what that looks like as it's lived out on a lifestyle level. Remember that the Torah is spiritual too. So never just, never just do, do mitzvot. Stop and ask yourself, like, what is this on a spiritual level? How is Messiah the fulfillment of this mitzvah? Why did God say to do this thing? Right? What does this communicate about the gospel to me? Like, we never want to approach the Torah on a fleshly humanistic level. Because it, it is a bunch of bondage and legalism and spiritual death then. It is. But when we approach the Torah in God's spirit, His living spirit, then it's life and it's freedom and it is grace and it really is spiritual. So, I, I think um, maybe Paul had that in mind too in uh, the beginning of Romans 8. Because he says there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Messiah. And then he goes on to say, for the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Torah, it can be a lot of sin and death. And when people wield it in the flesh, they can just be like spreading that death to more people. Or, if we approach the Torah through Messiah, 
in the Spirit of God, it can be a, it can be a very life-giving thing. And then, verse 3, he points out that the Torah isn't enough. There's stuff that the Torah cannot do in your life, like atone for your sin. And then in verse 4, listen to this. This is Paul's understanding of being Spirit-led, of what the Spirit-filled life looks like. He says, So that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Did you get that? So when we walk according to the Spirit, when we, when we live by the Spirit of God in us, it is going to lead us not to just chop the Old Testament out of our Bibles. It's going to lead us to fulfill God's Torah. Did you notice that? The Torah's requirements are fulfilled by people who are Spirit-led, who are Spirit-filled. And I, I, I found that to be true in my life. You know, as I sit down and I study the Word, the Spirit of God in me will... Like, the Spirit of God in me wants to do mitzvot. The Spirit of God in me wants to do the things that He said. You know, the Spirit of God in me wants to observe Shabbat like my rabbi observed Shabbat. You know, I, I could give so many examples, but that, that's my personal experience. He even goes on to say in uh, Romans 8, 7, that, like... When our brains are locked in the physical world, when we're not like thinking by God's Spirit and being like guided by a Spirit, we actually can't subject ourselves to God's Torah. It's not possible. And this is really important because so often Messianic people, they, they're like, their focus is on getting other people to do mitzvot, right? They want to get them connected with the Torah. And that's a good thing. But what, Paul seem, what I hear Paul saying here is like, don't put the cart before the horse. Your first objective is to get people filled with the Spirit and teach them to follow the Spirit of God in them. Because God's Spirit is the one who wrote the Torah. God's Spirit is the one who lives out the Torah through us, right? So um, maybe that's something that we can remember in terms of, of, of priorities and stuff. Maybe I'll, 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 uh, I'll finish with a, a very practical insight that Paul gave about prayer. Um, in 8 verse 6 he mentions that the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and shalom and uh, usually when I think about the spirit I think about like something really far out there you know like the song the spirit in the sky or something you know but just stop and think about this for a sec like you have a spirit you're not just like a chunk of flesh running around and doing stuff like you, the, 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 your, your body's like your earth suit right you live inside your body. You are a spirit. You have a spirit. So if you're going to mind the spirit of God, where does that start? It starts by like listening to the spirit of God in you. And I find that that's a very practical thing. And it's really hard. I think maybe especially for people like me with a more like choleric personality because I love, I'm very action oriented. I love doing stuff. And it's, almost, it's so easy to get sucked into living from this level. You live from your brain. You live on a physical action level. But His Spirit is down here. Like when we open our hearts to God, when we quiet our, our deep inner persons before Him, we're going to begin like discovering His Spirit. You're going to begin to hear the voice of His Spirit. Um, I, I really appreciate like the whole tradition of contemplative prayer in that regard. I find there's some really... I agree, there's some really weird things that happen in the name of contemplative prayer. I don't mean that, okay? I just mean like getting quiet before God and minding His Spirit in you. So that's really practical, hey? Yeah. So anyway, um, that's, that's a very practical thing on prayer. The other one is in 15. He says, God's Spirit in you actually uh, talks Hebrew. <laughs> 
Or at least God's Spirit in you has one Hebrew word that he, he likes to say. It's the Hebrew word for, uh, for dad. Abba. Isn't that cool? I mean, like, okay, whether Paul wrote this letter originally in uh, Hebrew or Greek is beside the point. It's just cool that in English, even, we still have this Hebrew, original Hebrew word for dad, hey? Like, I don't know, why didn't Paul have it written in the Greek word for dad? You know? Or the Greek word for father or whatever. It, just, it was like something about that just didn't cut it. It had to be the original Hebrew term Abba. And even Yeshua called his father Abba. In the book of Mark, we hear that, you know, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. So that's the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with. It's a practical thing in prayer. God's Spirit in you is calling on Him. God's Spirit is calling God by Hebrew names and titles, including Abba. So I'm really excited about our Hebrew course that I'm producing because one of the sections in it is just going to be like several pages of the Hebrew names and titles of God. And I'm just going to like teach our students this so they can just use those in their prayer life and just begin calling on Him by His Hebrew names and titles. Because that's what His Spirit in us does. Yeah. That's like an expression of sonship. So this week, in your private prayer time, maybe if you're just going about the day, washing the dishes or whatever, just whisper Abba. Seriously, do it. Just like, try it. Just let the Spirit in you, that is the Spirit of a son, that is the Spirit of a daughter, just say Abba to the Father. And, and find, just find if that doesn't bring you into a deeper, a deeper place of closeness with Him. Yeah. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.